37. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus, carrying his own cross. He went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. The garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple he said, Here is your mother. And from that time on, the disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that everything had been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked the sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of a hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because of the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies to be left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus, they found that he was already dead. They did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies it so that you may also believe. These things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken, and as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Uh, morning, guys, and a big shout out to the whanau down in Hastings. Morena, guys. That's a, an amazing passage. I wonder if I asked you the question, what would be the crux of human history? If you could pick out one event or incident, one statement, one day, what would be the crux of all of human history 
that pretty much dictates everything else that goes on, that, on everything, that everything else hinges on. And a lot of you right now um, would say it was the cross, mainly because Mandy just gave you the answer in her reading. But a lot of you as Christians would know just the significance of the cross. And what I find so fascinating when we think about what is the crux of human history is that the word crux is the Latin word for cross. And this has been the symbol, the the logo, if you like, for Christianity for nearly 2,000 years. And it's a fascinating thing because when you think about what the cross is, it's, it's almost bizarre. Before Jesus went to the cross, the cross was nothing more than a brutal, horrible torture device. And yet today, I won't ask for a show of hands, but I'm guessing that a lot of you may even have a cross hanging around your neck. And if I come into your homes, you may have in your foyer or one of your rooms a cross hanging on the wall. But it is nothing more than an execution device. How many of you have a a hangman's noose beautifully hanging around your neck? Or if I come into your home, you have a picture of an electric chair in the foyer just to show the nature, the character of the home. You know, if you're really devout, you might have a little man sitting on the chair. (laughs) It's just bizarre, isn't it? Because in Jesus' day, that's exactly what the cross was. Think about the Roman senator Cicero, famous uh, 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 statesman of Rome, stood up and defended an elderly senator who'd been convicted of murder and was about to go to, to the cross. And Cicero, this famous Roman, says the very word cross should be far removed, not only from the person of a Roman citizen, But from his thoughts, his eyes and his ears, the mere mention of them, that is unworthy of a Roman citizen. The word cross was not used in polite Roman conversation. Little Zechariah goes off to kindergarten and he meets some kids from the other side of the tracks and he comes home and he says, you would probably give him the wooden spoon. That's what it was like. It was just anathema. The cross was a horrible, gruesome thing. And yet today, every day of the week, today, especially on a Sunday, billions throughout the world are going to stand up and sing about the cross. We delight in what happened on the cross. We see Jesus' death as as our hope. Why is that? It's just completely bizarre. And so that's what we want to look at today. And to look at why we do this, I want to answer two questions, basically. I'm not going to go through verse by verse. There's a whole lot of questions. I apologize in advance that I'm not going to answer. But as we look at the cross, as we look at what happened there, I want to answer two questions that I think are vital for us. And the first one is just what happened? What happened that day when Jesus went to the cross? And secondly, and far more importantly, why did it happen? So what happened and why? In terms of what happened, it seems to be a really simple answer to the question. Jesus died. We read, as we look at verse 17 of what Mandy just read, the soldiers took charge of Jesus. And again, just trying to take in the magnitude of this, the soldiers took charge of Jesus. That's like saying the kites took charge of the hurricane, isn't it? It's just, how can you grasp the gravity of what's going on? Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. You're probably more familiar with the Latin, which is Calvary. Here they crucified him. 
and with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. They crucified him. The mortals murdered their maker. The creatures crucified their creator. Jesus died. That's the the short, easy answer to the first question. What, What actually happened? Well, Jesus died. But it wasn't just any death. It's not how any of us would want to die, is it? Crucifixion was just a horrible, brutal way to go. John Stott, in his book, The Cross of Christ, describes it like this. He said, it is probably the most cruel method of execution ever practiced for it deliberately delayed death until maximum torture had been inflicted. The victim could suffer for days before dying. When the Romans adopted it, they reserved it for criminals convicted of murder, rebellion, or armed robbery, provided that they were were also slaves, foreigners, or non-persons. Roman citizens were not normally crucified. It would be an exceeding rarity for them to reduce a Roman citizen to such a horrible death. The idea being that that just physically when you were stretched out, nailed to the wooden beam, that you would just struggle so badly to breathe to the point where your internal organs would start shutting down and over hours or even days you would slowly suffocate to death. It was designed to be a deterrent. It was in public places. It was at the roadsides. It was on hills where everyone could see so that if anyone thought about challenging the rule and the law of Rome, they would be warned, this is what could happen to you. It's a brutal, horrible death. And yet this is exactly how Jesus died. And without wanting to labor the the details of how that happened, John, when he writes this, seems to want to make it really clear that Jesus did actually physically die. And we know that that's important because in the next chapter, we're going to read John recording that Jesus will walk away from his tomb. The resurrection miracle where God placed his seal of acceptance on what Jesus had done. But there's no resurrection from the dead if Jesus wasn't really dead. And so John is at pains to point out that Jesus really did die. If you look at how how the soldiers who are specialists in crucifixion, what happens in verse 33 when they get to Jesus, what diagnosis do they make? When they came to Jesus, verse 33... They found that he was already dead, so they didn't break his legs. Breaking legs was the way that you would normally speed up the process. If the person is strung out and they're desperately gasping for air to to get a a breath, you, you could push up on your feet and gasp. But if your legs have been smashed, you simply can't do that. And so the process, if you want to speed it up, you just club their legs. The soldiers get to Jesus and they diagnose him as already dead. There's no need to club his legs. But because the consequences of getting that diagnosis wrong, if Jesus, through some far-fetched, almost miracle, if he survived and walked away, what were the consequences for the soldiers? Well, they would forfeit their lives because they had lost a prisoner. So to make absolutely sure, even though they've diagnosed him as dead, what do they do? Look at verse 34. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. Now, John is not a doctor. And he doesn't understand the medical significance of this. 
but there is a medical significance. Dr. William Edwards uh, wrote a, a, an article in the Journal of the American Medical Association, and this is what he said. He said, clearly the weight of historical and medical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead before the wound to his side was inflicted and supports the traditional view that the spear thrust between his right ribs probably perforated, pierced, not only the right lung, but also the pericardium, the, the sac around the heart, and the heart, and thereby ensured his death. He goes on, accordingly, interpretations of the resurrection that are based on the assumption that Jesus didn't die appear to be at odds with modern medical knowledge. Jesus definitely, truly, actually, physically died on the cross. And John is at pains to point that out. <clears throat> so that's, if you like, the what happened. Jesus died a brutal, agonizing death on the cross. When we want to describe the worst type of pain possible today, and we describe it as excruciating, we're drawing on a word that comes from the word crucifixion. That's how Jesus died, and he definitely died. So that's the answer to the first question, and probably the easiest of the two questions we'll look at today. What happened? Jesus died on the cross. Far more important, though, for us is why did that happen? And why, when we look at that today, do we find hope in something so horrible? Something so awful, such a, a dis disgusting, shameful spectacle. Why do we delight in the cross today? Two explanations for this. The first one is a legal explanation, and it's what we call penal substitution or penalty substitution. The second one is a, is a uh, not so much legal, it's more of a visual pictorial thing coming from a ritual that God had asked to happen for hundreds of years before the cross, and that's the Passover celebration. So what do we mean when we talk about this idea of penal substitution? It comes from a, a frightening dilemma, a dilemma of, of cosmic proportions which itself comes from two things that we love, one being justice and the other being love. And we all love these things. We want to have a society with, with justice and with love. Think about justice. On a lighter note, perhaps, we want justice, don't we? When you go to the movies, you want everything tied up at the end. You want the, the, the good guy to win. Think about um, James Bond. How many of you, put your hand up, don't be ashamed, watch James Bond films? We love 007. My, oh my word, there's actually shame on you guys. <laughs> Watching such violent, chauvinistic movies. Come on, it's terrible. But it's okay. I have I've observed a couple of those films for cultural research purposes. <clears throat> so I understand that when you get to the end of the film and the evil genius has killed untold innocent people, he's about to nuke the world and 007 crack, tracks him down and sub wrestles with him, subdues him. What do we want at that stage? Do we want 007 to recognize that the evil genius wet his bed and wasn't encouraged as a kid and let him go free? 
No, we don't want that at all, do we? We want 007 to do what 007 is licensed to do. We want justice. We don't want him to let the guy just, I, I see the good in you. It's not what we want at all. We want justice. And perhaps on a more realistic, serious note, how do you feel when, when someone violates you or someone you, you love, they criminally violate you? How do you feel when the courts are just too busy or they're too weak or they're too corrupt? to stand up and do anything about it. How do you feel? You are aggrieved. You hate that thought. I've heard it said so well that when justice collapses in a society, hope collapses in that society. We want justice desperately. And we don't want just earthly justice. We want eternal justice. How many of you are comfortable with the fact that Adolf Hitler murders millions of innocent civilians and then he takes the coward's way out and then rests in peace forever? How many of you love that thought? None of you love that thought. We want Hitler to stand before his maker and face eternal justice. Pol Pot, Stalin. We want God to do what is right. We want justice. We want God to be the perfect judge. And yet when we think about God being the perfect judge, it becomes frightening for us as individuals because when we read what God has revealed to us, it's not just the Hitlers and the Stalins of the world who are guilty before God. I'm guilty before God. The Bible says really clearly, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has wandered off, rebelled, turned their backs, don't live as God calls them to. There is no one righteous. No, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and we all deserve his punishment. I imagine you feel uncomfortable sitting here in that. We all do. Part of that discomfort, though, part of that railing against this idea is firstly that we just struggle to take in the nature of the being who is the perfect judge. We struggle to take in what God is like, his utter perfection. We struggle to, to grasp with our tiny minds who we're talking about when we talk about God, this being who speaks and brings the universe into, into play, who holds galaxy clusters in his hands, who, who is above history, who sees the future from the past at the same time, who is above and beyond time, who rises up kings and deposes them at his whim, who is said to be enthroned, surrounded by 10,000 times 10,000 angels who cry out to him, holy, 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 are you Lord God Almighty? Just a perfection and a majesty and a righteousness beyond what we can take in. And so when we look at ourselves as basically good people, we miss that comparison of what true perfection and good looks like, what holiness looks like. 
And if we understand that, we start to see how far we pale into comparison. The second thing we, we fail to understand is when we talk about God's punishment, if you like, against sin. We get a picture in our heads of God almost putting us in a, in a cage with flames and poking us with sticks just to be vindictive and nasty. But that's not the nature of God's opposition and punishment of sin at all. Because true punishment for sin is much more that God, because he is holy, separates himself from sin. And if you think about God separating himself from anything. When God separates himself, everything that goes with God, everything that is good is separated as well. Think, just get in your head the picture of, of just total goodness, happiness, companionship, understanding, comfort, peace, hope, enjoyment, satisfaction. Every, everything you could put on the list of good things just goes hand in hand with God because that is the nature and character of God. Try then, if you can, to get a mental picture of, of what the scene looks like when all of those things that are purely outflows of God, when they are taken away and there is an absence of all comfort, there is a complete absence of peace. There is an absence of satisfaction. There is an absence of health. There is a complete absence of hope. Try and imagine the darkness of the picture that you're painting. You're painting a picture of what hell is like. Hell is not a cage where God pokes people with a stick. Hell is a place where God has separated himself and everything that goes hand in hand with him. And that is what is left. Because conversely, heaven is not heaven because there's lovely harp music and clouds and lots of food. Heaven is heaven because it is in the presence of God. And every beautiful and good and amazing and lovely thing that goes with him. So for God to deal with sin, for God as the perfect judge to, do, to impart, administer justice against sin. It's a horrible thing. But as the perfect judge, that's what we want him to do. We want justice to be done. Can you start to see the dilemma that we want him to be the perfect judge, but we want to be loved by him as well? That's what we're created to be. There is this dilemma of cosmic proportions. And it's a frightening dilemma. The good news is that God, the creator, has solved the dilemma. He has done something about it. Because in his perfect justice, he has administered punishment for sin. In his perfect love, he has taken that justice and that punishment on himself. And so that's why we read... Uh, in Acts, when, when Peter stands up and speaks to his Jewish audience, he said, guys, the cross was not the plan gone wrong. The cross was the plan. This was what God wanted. And he describes it. He said, this man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate 
plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. And this wasn't a last-minute plan. A thousand years before the cross, what did Isaiah write? Speaking about the, the Messiah, Isaiah wrote in chapter 53, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord, Yahweh, has laid on him, on the Messiah, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. So the dilemma the cosmic dilemma of justice and love is completely solved by God. Unlike every other religion, where in every other religion for their God or gods to show mercy, they have to do it at the expense of justice. God doesn't do that. Every religion has to do that. It has to park justice in order to show mercy. But in the Christian worldview of what happened at the cross, God does not dismiss justice at the expense of his mercy. He displays his mercy through his justice because he administers the punishment and he takes the punishment himself. And in case we sit here and we think, but that's just barbaric. That's, I've heard it described as cosmic child abuse that a, a, a belligerent, vindictive father punishes his innocent son who hadn't done anything wrong. But when we think about that Jesus is part of this plan, Jesus, the sin-hating, sinner-loving Savior, is completely on board with us. He chooses to do this as our legal, our penal substitute. The next question I guess you could ask is, well, why did it have to be Jesus? Couldn't we just put up another representative? I mean, seriously, you can have Hitler. Let Hitler be the representative of the whole lot of us. Do whatever you like to that guy. He deserves it. That's exactly the problem. If we put Hitler forward, the punishment he receives is simply what he deserves. Guys, if you put me forward, the punishment I receive is simply what I deserve. Our substitute, our representative, has to be someone who doesn't deserve punishment. And so that's why when Peter describes the one who would be our substitute, Peter who had lived with Jesus, Peter who had seen Jesus in every situation, seen him when he was tired, seen him when he was under pressure, seen him when he was attacked, when he was abused, and how did he respond? Never dropped the ball, never sinned. How did Peter describe him? Peter says of Jesus, he committed no sin and no deceit was even found in his mouth. Jesus was sinless. He did not deserve any punishment. And so he alone, out of every human who has ever lived, who had been tested and found perfect, sinless, he alone could be our substitute, our representative. Paul put it another way. He said, Christ never sinned, but God treated him as a sinner so that Christ could make us acceptable to God. That's the legal explanation, if you like, of what happened on the cross, that he was our substitute. He stepped in and he took the punishment that we deserve so that we don't have to take that punishment if we will only entrust ourselves to him. 
There's another explanation, though, that John doesn't want us to miss. And it's much more of a visual one. If you find the legal side heavy, you'll probably like this more. And it's the picture of the Passover celebration. And a lot of you may be familiar with this, particularly if you went through Sunday school and you've heard the Old Testament stories. You may remember that back in history, about 1300, 1400 BC, the infant nation of Israel were enslaved in Egypt. And they had a ruthless dictator, Pharaoh, who had ruled over them, and they were making bricks, they were enslaved, they cried out to their God, Yahweh, would you set us free, would you rescue us from this tyrant? And he answers, and so God says to, sends a, a representative, Moses, to Pharaoh, and he says, let my people go. Pharaoh says no. He says, okay, I'm going to send you some warnings. And we have these things called plagues, where he sends uh, a plague of locusts, a plague of flies. He turns the rivers to blood. It's just horrendous. But time and time again, when he says to Pharaoh, let my people go, Pharaoh hardens his heart and he refuses. And so we get to the point where God says, okay, this is it. I'm going to send one final plague, and this will convince you. And he says, on a certain midnight, I'm going to go through the land. And every firstborn son in every family is going to die. If that's what it takes to convince you, that's what I'm going to do. And he promised that. But he said to his people, the Jewish people, the Israelites, I've got another promise for you. I'm going to pass through the land, but I'm going to pass over you. And I'm going to spare your firstborn." But I want you to mark out your homes. And I want you to do this in a special way. I want you to take a lamb on the 10th day of the month. And I want you to keep that lamb. And then on the 14th day, I want you to take that lamb. And and it has to be without blemish. I want you to take a perfect lamb. No defect, no blemish. And on the 14th day of the month, I want you to kill that lamb. And before you cook it and eat it, I want you to take its blood and I want you to mark your houses. I want to see that you are my people. I want you to put the lamb's blood on the doorposts of your houses, on the vertical beams and across the top of your doors. And the Jewish people, I'm thinking, probably thought this was a bit weird, maybe a bit gross, but they obeyed. And on the night of the Passover, death swept through Egypt. We've got the records, just horrendous death throughout the country from Pharaoh's own family right through to the families of his slaves. The firstborn died through the country, wailing through the streets. It must have been just utterly awful. And yet, in the area where the Jewish slaves were, this fledgling nation, there was no wailing because they'd marked out their homes and God had passed over them when he passed through the nation and he had spared them. And so God says, I want you to have a memorial of what I've done this night. And so he instituted what they called the Passover festival. It was a day at the start and then a week, the, the, the festival of unleavened bread and it kind of got merged together, the Passover festival. And for hundreds of years, generation after generation, Countless lambs killed to remember this amazing thing that Yahweh had done when he rescued the nation of Israel from Egypt. 
generation after how many thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of lambs killed. And then one day, about AD 30, something like that, this crazy guy, John the Baptist, you want to see what he wears? He eats locusts and honey. This crazy Jewish preacher. He's got his disciples, people all around him. And John the Baptist recognizes someone walking along. He recognizes a guy called Jesus from a town called Nazareth, carpenter. And John all of a sudden gets animated and he says to his disciples, look, look, it's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's him. That's the one I told you about. As he's pointing to this guy, Jesus. Years later, a guy called Paul would add to what John the Baptist has said. Paul, who had become a follower of that man, Jesus, writes to a little church and he describes Jesus as the Christ, the promised one. And he says this, he says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Another follower of this man, Jesus, a guy called John, will write a book called Revelation. Seeing into the future, visions that God's given him 28 times through the book of Revelation, John's going to refer to Jesus as the Lamb. He's going to talk about thousands upon thousands. He says 10,000 times 10,000 angels are bowed before Jesus. And what do they refer to him as? The Lamb who was slain. And before Jesus, before John wrote Revelation, He wrote the book that we're reading from today. This event that he's recording today. And as God inspires John to put these words down that Mandy read that we're looking at, he wants to make it unmissable. He wants us to understand. No Jewish person in the first century would see this and miss the parallel with what's going on. When we think about the need for our legal substitute to be Spotless, perfect, blameless. Is it any surprise that the lamb had to be spotless without blemish? Can you see the echo of the blood on the, on the doorposts, the vertical post and the horizontal post in the house? Can you see why John highlights in this passage when he says that that they didn't break Jesus' legs. What were some of the regulations about the Passover celebration? In Exodus 12, when it first happened, describing what they were to do with the lamb, how they were to eat it, God said it must be eaten inside the house. Take none of the meat outside the house. Do not break any of the bones. And John re-highlights this. Where were the Passover lambs sacrificed. It wasn't all throughout Israel. It was reduced down to Jerusalem. And where did Jesus die? What was the celebration that thousands upon thousands of Jewish pilgrims had flocked to Jerusalem to see when Jesus hung on the cross that day? They were there for the Passover celebration. And so when you see this, And you marry that with this idea of of substitution, of the perfect substitute being sacrificed in our place. Can you start to understand the gravity of what's going on on the cross? Can you start to get 
What an incredible victory this was. Can you start to see why when Jesus gets to the end of his life, and in verse 30, he gives out this cry. He says, it is finished. To Talistai, it's paid for, it's done, it's finished. It's just incredible. Compare this to any other worldview. Compare this to all of the other religions. What did, what did Buddha say? As Buddha died and he's surrounded by his disciples, his last words are variously translated. But basically he said, strive without ceasing. Strive unendingly. Strive diligently. What does Jesus say? He says, guys, I've done it. It's finished. I've done it. The price is paid. The victory is won. You are free. I've done it. I've completed it. It is done for all time. It's the perfect tense. I've finished it. It's just incredible. This is why we delight in the cross. This is why the cross is so important, especially when we read the next chapter and see that God accepted this offering that's been made. But this is not just an academic exercise. Because when John writes this, he wants a response from us. He says, when he describes what's gone on, he, he describes, he says in verse 35, the man who saw this has given testimony. And his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth and he testifies so that you also may believe. And when John talks about belief here, he's not just talking about you understanding and accepting some academic historical uh, veracity, if you like. This is not just a head thing that's going on here. What he's wanting us to understand, what he's wanting us to respond to with our lives is not just a head thing, is this idea that Jesus truly died as the Lamb of God so that if we respond to that, we can truly live as children of God. It's not just an academic head belief that John is calling us to. John has used this idea of believing in Jesus right through his book. And to make sure that we understand it's more than just an academic assent to a series of facts, at the start of his book, John used a, 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 ling, a language tool, it's called parallelism, to explain what he meant by belief. Right in the first chapter of John, he said this, talking about Jesus, he said, all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You see what John's doing? He's going to use this idea of believing all through the book, so he wants to make it really clear. What am I getting at when I ask you to believe? And so he couples it with this idea. He said it's more than just in your head. He said it's not just believing. He said it's receiving him. It's not just a head thing, it's a heart thing, it's a whole of life thing. When the Bible talks about believing in, when it talks about faith, when it talks about trust, it's not just a head belief, it's an entrusting. It's a committing ourselves to. When any other religion calls us to their worldview, they will call us to regulations, they will call us to rules, they will call us to their religion. We invite people into relationship. That's what Christianity is about. It's just fundamentally different from any other worldview. 
John wants us to understand that. He wants us to respond. And some of you are thinking to yourselves, I just don't know, I'm, I'm not good enough, I'm not worthy. That's the whole point, is that none of us are worthy. That's why Jesus had to do what he did. We needed a substitute to save us because we couldn't save ourselves. Some of you are thinking to yourselves, I just don't have enough faith. My faith is so fickle. Tell you what, you're just like me if you have a fickle faith. I want to share a story from Don Carson that I think helps this. If you think you don't have enough faith, your faith is too small, and it's from the idea of the the first Passover. Two men are in Goshen, the area where the Jews were all living. Mr. Smith and Mr. Jones, remarkably Jewish names. And Smith says to Jones, I'm really worried about what's going on. You've you've heard about this Passover idea. He says, I'm really scared. And, And Jones says, it's all right, God's got it in hand. Haven't you, haven't you done what, you know, you're not going to do what Moses said to do, just you do the lamb thing and the blood and that. Smith says, but it's just, oh, it's, it's frightening. I mean, just the, you've seen what's been going on, the plagues, the rivers seriously turn to blood. It's fine for you. You've got three sons. I've got one son. And I love my little Zechariah. I can't afford for this to go wrong. And Jones says, man, I just say, bring it on. I trust in the promises of Yahweh. And that night, death sweeps through Egypt. Which one of those guys lost his son? Neither of those guys lost their son. Because it's not how strong your faith is, how perfect and how complete your faith is. It's what your faith is in. And if you've just got a little bit of blood on the door of your house, you've marked out your house. If you've just got a little bit of faith in the almighty, perfect Son of God who offered himself as the perfect substitute for you, your faith, and that perfection is all you need. And so I just want to ask, Have you done that? Have you entrusted yourself to Jesus to be accepted completely as a child of God, to be welcomed into heaven, to be adopted as a child of the king of the universe? If you've never done that, honestly, I just would love to give you the chance to do that this morning. It's not a complicated thing. All I would ask you to do is just to respond, to, to accept the gift that's being offered. I'm going to put up an example prayer. These are not magic words. There's nothing incredible. It's not a particularly beautiful, complicated prayer. But if you have never entrusted yourself to Jesus as your saviour, if you've never accepted this gift, what he did on the cross, being your substitute that you might be accepted by God, can I just beg you, would you... Just pray this prayer or or words that mean the idea of this prayer. 
I'm just going to read through it. And if this honestly expresses your heart, would you just pray this with me? Lord Jesus, you gave me life, but I don't live for you as I should. I've turned my back on you, and I've lived for myself. Thank you for taking my punishment when you died on the cross. Please forgive me and help me to live with you. I entrust myself to you. And can I just ask that if, if you've done that, we're in a couple of minutes, we're going to we're going to carry out another ceremony, similar but different to the, the, the idea of a Passover, another picture, if you like, that God has asked us to do. When you've done that, if you prayed that prayer, if you've made this decision this morning, can I just ask, would you tell someone, someone you came with, let me know. There'll be people up the front who would just love to just pray with you, if you're comfortable with that, just to, to celebrate with you, to answer any questions that you may have. But would you please let someone know? You don't have to, but we would love that, just to help you take the next steps on your journey. Uh, the band, if they want to come up now, are going to lead us in a couple of songs of worship. And what we're going to do is just stop now and just do our own celebration, something that Jesus asked us to do the night before he was crucified. When he said, when you get together, I want you to take this bread and, and drink this cup as just a memory, a memorial of my body that's given for you, my blood that is shed for you. So as the, as the band leads us, can we do that? Just in your own time, whenever you like, just come up and grab the, the bread and the cup and just remember this, this truth, this big idea for today, that Jesus, the spotless, perfect Lamb of God, truly died so that we can truly live as children of God. Great.